A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Chapter six, the journey from platform nine and three quarters. Harry's last month with the Dursleys wasn't fun. True, Dudley was now so scared of Harry, he wouldn't stay in the same room. While Aunt Petunia and Uncle Vernon didn't shut Harry in his cupboard, force him to do anything, or shout at him, in fact, they didn't speak to him at all. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Matt Potts. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Matt, our only announcement today is that my book comes out so soon. Everyone should pre-order it. It's called Praying with Jane Eyre. And if you pre-order it through Harvard Bookstore, you get a signed book plate from me. If I pre-order 10 copies from Harvard Bookstore, will I get 10 signed book plates? It's true. You will. I think that everyone should test that theory and see how many books you need to order before (laughs) you run out of free book plates. That's what I think. And everyone, you can read nice things that I say about Matt if you buy my book. I say nice things. Matt, you are telling this week's story through the theme of fear. What have you got for us today? I'm going to tell a story this week about when I was working in a hospital training to be a chaplain. And I want your help, Vanessa, in thinking about where fear was, what fear was in this experience. I know I felt afraid a lot of the times, but I'm not sure that that was always the right reaction or the best reaction. So I worked in a regional hospital in Southwest Michigan, where I'm from, during my master's degree. And I spent a summer there working as an on-call chaplain. And because of sort of budget restrictions and so forth, this hospital had made a choice to basically send all their social workers home at 5 p.m. And then the volunteer chaplains would work through the night on you know weeknights and all weekends dealing with emergencies. And this hospital was the only level one trauma center in Southwest Michigan. So 
the worst injuries would come into the hospital. And that was not something I was necessarily prepared for. I think when I took the job, I knew it was something that would happen. And it was actually something that I thought would force me to grow up a lot in going through that process. But it was also a really scary thing for me. And I remember working at the hospital on like Friday and Saturday nights. I remember like just not being able to sleep at night, watching like reruns of Top Chef on Bravo on the TV in the chaplain's office and lying on the couch trying to fall asleep, but actually just staring at the pager and asking it not to go off and just like hoping that it would not go off because I did not know what would be on the end of the other end of that emergency call. It felt like fear. It was the first time I'd been routinely up at nights afraid about what would happen through the night. And what I want to ask you about, Vanessa, is like whether I was right to be afraid. I mean, I know I was anxious or nervous about what might be asked of me or might, what I might be called to respond to, but like I wasn't the one in a car accident. I wasn't the one suffering a gunshot wound. I wasn't a relative of one of the people who was in a car accident or suffering a gunshot wound. I was scared of having to see it. And so there's a way in which the fear caused me to close in a little bit. Like the fear made me more selfish than I ought to have been and led me to poorly assess the actual risks of my involvement in those situations. So this is what I'm thinking about fear is like, because fear is maybe definitionally irrational, like it just makes us assess risk wrong and become too selfish and preoccupied or maybe preoccupied with the wrong things or afraid of the wrong things. I think that fear can often be really useful when it's a little bit of a choice or when it forces you to share. If it forces you to ask for help, then I think fear is really useful. But I also did my clinical pastoral education at a trauma one level one trauma center. And I will never forget when the first GSW, right, gunshot wound got paged to me. I was terrified. So if fear is the wrong response, you at least have company and that it was also my response. I think you're right. I mean, the first on-call I had overnight on-call was a gunshot wound. That was the first call I got. And I think part of me was just like the fear of that being the next call almost for the rest of the summer, every time I was overnight there. And that is a scary thing to respond to. But I also have reflected a lot since then about not processing that fear well enough kept me from being as responsive as I might have been every overnight after that. Well, let's use Harry Potter to answer these questions, right? I think that we can learn a lot in this chapter about effective fear and ineffective fear and fear harnessed versus fear that takes you over. Yeah, effective fear and ineffective fear. That's a really good way to frame it. I like that. Matt, I will start our 30 second recap. Can you please count me in? Three, two, one, go. So Harry is like, uh, can you guys drive me to London? And Vernon and Petunia are like, yeah, ha ha. There's no such thing as platform nine and three quarters. And they drop him off there just to laugh in his face. And Dudley needs to get his tail removed. And then Harry meets the Weasleys. And Molly Weasley is the best person in the entire world. And they get on the train. And Hermione Granger is comes in with her bushy hair. And she's quote unquote bossy. And bossy means awesome. And Neville is there. And they meet Draco. And he's a jerk. And then they arrive via boats to Hogwarts. That was 30 seconds? That seemed like less than 30 seconds. Yeah, that went by so fast. Okay, you have to somehow make it more time. Are you ready to go? Yes, I'm ready to go. On your mark, get set, go. 
So Harry is at the house uh, by himself, and he's waiting to go to Hogwarts, and he finally goes to Hogwarts, and the Dursleys take him, and they're super mean and abandon a child in the train station, and then he can't find the platform, but he sees some people disappearing, so he he says, ask for help, and they help him, and it's great. And then Fred and George realize who he is, and they they help board him out of the train, and he gets into a compartment with with Ron, and, uh, and then Draco comes. Oh, they get a bunch of candy, and then Draco comes, and Draco's a jerk, and then they get off, and they meet Hagrid, and they feel better, and the four characters get into the boat, and they go across the boat, and that's 30 seconds. So, Matt, I feel like the place to start with this chapter is that the Dursleys and Dudley specifically are now terrified of Harry. And so we can bring your question to this moment of like, is their fear of Harry productive in any way? And I would say that the way that I can imagine it being productive is that it shifted the power dynamic in the house. Harry has gone from being abjectly, aggressively abused to like only being abused via neglect, which is an improvement. But that's all I got for fear being helpful in this moment. I mean, the way we were talking about it with my story was like, does the fear help the person who is afraid? Right. Fear is a natural response. It's a stress response of our bodies, which has evolved to keep us safe. It can be a good thing. It can also be a damaging thing, which is exactly what you're saying. I think in this case, their fear of Harry helps Harry. It doesn't help them. Does it help them? Does it like humble them a little bit? I mean, they're scared. They're not humble. What do you think? I think that making someone else afraid can feel like a really good revenge. My grandfather was like treated really horribly by this farmer during the Holocaust. And after the Holocaust, my grandfather for a few years was like an officer in the Communist Party before he defected and left the country. And he showed up at that farmer's house and the farmer actually wasn't home. The wife was home or they lied and they were terrified. My grandfather was like, I have something to talk about what this man did during the war. And he took great pleasure in knowing that he terrified these people. Maybe that was mean, but I'm like, good. They learned their lesson. They were mean to my grandpa. And then my grandpa's fancy uniform scared them. Yeah, maybe. It's clear that their fear benefits Harry. I'm not sure that their fear is causing them to grow into better people. Maybe they're the kind of people who aren't courageous enough to to continue being spiteful and mean to Harry, even though they are afraid. I don't think they're growing on the inside. One thing I want to think about with the Dursleys is probably really was scary having a child in their house with these powers for all these years. Yeah. They're probably not scared for the first time. They probably felt like they had very limited control over this extremely powerful being and that all their expressions of control and power over him were overreactions to their fear of what he might be capable of if he was inclined to do anything about it. And let's be honest, like the fact that they need to go to London to get a pigtail removed from their son is exactly what they were afraid of all this time, right? And so, again, I think as readers, as we spoke about in last week's episode, we have a little bit of wish fulfillment. We're a little bit glad that they are afraid, but their fear seems reasonable to me. Uh, their their cruelty doesn't still, right? Their cruelty doesn't still in abandoning Harry at the, at the platform. Yeah, so I think the question remains, like, is their fear productive for them? I think there are other characters in this chapter for whom fear is more clearly productive. I don't think it's productive at all for the Dursleys. I think that you're exactly right. I think that Dudley having to go have surgery and go through the excruciating process of having something so 
abnormal, removed the humiliation of that. All of that is just so cruel and so horrible. A version that I can imagine being helpful is if their fear for Dudley got them to write to Dumbledore or got them to ask Hagrid to remove it. There are ways that this fear could have been productive, but instead they are going this like hyper-medicalized, you know, private, not asking for help, but rather paying for help route. The ways that the Dursleys manage fear throughout the novels is going to be a recurring theme, right? It's something we see already. They're afraid of Harry and and the world that Harry imposes upon them at the beginning of the series. But then, you know, at the end of the series also, when they're kind of refusing to believe that they should leave the house, their reaction to that which frightens them is either to reject its possibility or to pretend or try to assert control over it and sometimes violent control over it, right? And they never do what you just said, which would be a more effective form of fear, which would be to like, okay, this is something I don't have control over. Where do I get help? How do I get help? Like, how do we respond to this in a way that is useful and wise and and rational and compassionate or et cetera. Yeah. And I would say that Harry does that and the rewards are endless. The Dursleys are so cruel to Harry. They, as you mentioned, sort of abandon him, you know, between chapters nine and 10 and laugh. What are they laughing at? That Harry isn't actually going to make it to Hogwarts and that he'll have to come back and live with them. Like, it's just, it's like nonsensical cruelty. But because of that, Harry asks first for help from a muggle who cannot help, but then he asks help from Molly, right? And he essentially gets the Weasleys out of this response to fear. He is scared he's going to miss the train. He's scared he's not going to be able to figure out how to do it. He watches Percy and the twins go through the barrier and tries to hold his fear at bay and not be vulnerable a second time. And he just can't do it. And then he gets Molly and and Ron and everyone from it. This is a really great reading, Vanessa. I think it's a completely analogous situation. Just like the Dursleys here, Harry is presented with a world he does not understand at all. It's first day of school. Oh my gosh. First day of school, always nervous, always anxiety. And you're going to boarding school, more anxiety. You're going to wizarding boarding school, more anxiety. You're, you've been abandoned by your caretakers and have to find the train yourself. And also the platform doesn't exist. So full of fear, nothing he understands. And his response is to turn to someone and ask for help. And then the other thing, which is to like, just trust, to recognize that kindness, intuit the kindness in Molly, and then to run full speed at a wall, <laughs> right? Like that is, I mean, I, I hesitate to call it fearlessness because if you read the passage where he's describing it, he's afraid that he's going to just smack into that wall the whole time he's running. Oh yeah. The whole time. The whole time. Right. And so like, it's, it's full of fear, but fear is something we can hold alongside trust. And when others around us are kind, that helps us hold our fear because we trust those who are kind around us, right? And so it is a complete opposite reaction to that which we do not understand, to the a world which is foreign to us or unfamiliar to us. And it's the one that, you know, certainly I would want to emulate, right? Not the Dursley's <laughs> version. And can we just talk about like what an ace Molly is for a minute about like managing all the different fears that are happening here? Jenny is very scared. She's going to be the last kid at home. She's going to be home alone with her mom and dad. She like feels left out as the youngest. And I just love when Molly's like, what platform is it again? And like Molly, 
it's been the same platform the whole time. You went to Hogwarts for seven years. You've been taking kids to Hogwarts for like 10 years now, at least. Right. Like it's just so Ginny can be like platform nine and three quarters. She's just being such a good mom, even though she packs corned beef and that makes Ron feel unloved. But other than that, aces, Mrs. Weasley. I love Molly in this chapter as well. I mean, almost more than at any other point in, in the books. I know that she has other heroic moments, but this is this is as good as it gets like from anybody. Right. Because she is managing all these such different personalities from her children. And then she basically adopts another child in the moment. And what's so beautiful about it is like, does not react to the celebrity. You can tell afterwards inside, she was like, oh my gosh, this is Harry Potter. But in the moment, she's just like, this is a child. This is an 11 year old who is on his own and we are going to help him and then flip out with each other later. Right. But right now we're just going to take care of him because he's scared. And of course he would be right. It's so like, it's so humanizing. She, she is so great with every one of the children who are in her care, even the ones who wander into her care, she immediately yeah, takes them in. It, yeah, it's great. I want to spend a minute, though, wondering about her relationship to Ron, because Ron has a lot of fear in this chapter. He, I would say, is most acutely worried about not being as good as his brother's. Bill was head boy. Charlie was the head of Quidditch. Fred and George joke around a lot, but even they're great. Like Percy is prefect. And like, what am I going to be? What if I get into Slytherin? My whole family's been in Gryffindor. And I do wonder if Molly being like Percy got new robes because he became prefect. I feel meh about that. What are your thoughts? Like you get hand-me-downs unless you're exceptional. I don't know. I mean, that's not how I felt about that. I don't know. I mean, maybe you did too. I don't know. But I grew up with hand-me-downs from my brothers, right? I just felt like, to me, that was just seemed really relatable. Like, we buy when we have to buy. Like, he needs new robes because he has to have the prefect robes or whatever, right? Oh, no. He has a pin. She bought him a present to celebrate. To celebrate. Yeah, I guess so too, right? Because doesn't Ron get one later? He gets a present, doesn't he? I can't remember. Yeah. Yeah, he gets, I think he gets a broom. But you'd think first day of school would be a time when the parents are like, okay, maybe not again until you're a prefect, but first day of school, you got to feel good. You're already nervous. It's already a scary time. You got to feel comfortable about yourself if you can afford it. I feel like they probably can't afford it, right? Like I also grew up with hand-me-downs and and not always feeling great about my clothes. I guess I just don't like the idea of the meritocracy being the driver of who gets the new thing. What it does is say that new robes are better than used robes, but the only way to get to new robes is by being exceptional. And I, I don't like that whole thing. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it is a merit thing. I mean, I think that maybe it is. But to me, it's more like if you're poor and you can only afford one set of new robes, you have to make a choice. Sure. Percy's is a very public position and Ron's a first year. And that's just part of part of not having enough. I mean, what I really like in the scene is it seems to me that, you know, Fred and George meet Harry first and they're older. Right. But it's almost like they give Harry to Ron. Totally. It's like this is your thing, Ron. Each of us have a thing at Hogwarts. Your thing is you get to be friends with Harry Potter. You get to be the one that tells us all the stories of Harry Potter, right? Like, it's almost like they they give him his thing by setting them up as friends, basically. And I, and I think that's really the beauty of big families who show up for each other, right? Like, especially maybe when times are tough or there's not enough money for new robes. When there are lots of siblings and everybody's watching out for each other, they just kind of take care of each other in these little ways and show up when and where it's most needed. I mean, it's not just Molly taking care of everybody, even in their own 
very teenage boy way. That's it's Fred and George taking care of Ron, too. I had never thought of that, but I think it's absolutely true. The twins are only a year ahead, right? Like they could absolutely become friends with Harry and like sit down with them. And instead they're like, here, Ron. I really love that reading of, yeah, Ron is afraid on his first day of school and in, and he's still scared, but he's scared with Harry. So the two of them are scared together which does just make it so much better. And it, it especially makes it better because Draco shows up right at the end of this chapter. And I don't think that either Ron or Harry would have stood up to Draco and Crabbe and Goyle on their own. So it like literally gives them this power against fear. It's funny when I was thinking about this chapter, I was thinking about fearlessness as much as fear. I mean, there's that moment of fearlessness when Harry's running towards the barrier and then there's also when they both stand up to Crab and Goyle, and you know from the text that they know that they will not win this fight. Like these guys are bigger. It's just like a reaction because they're with each other. It's a different kind of trust, which is empowering them to stand up to something fearful. I mean, I think that that's really what the chapter is showing us, right? Is that fear that makes you turn inward or defensive is not helpful, but fear that makes you vulnerable and ask for help or reach out gives you strength and therefore is like is a productive form of fear. Expressing fear really can be a way of of getting other people to take care of you when you need to be taken care of. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Matt, is there any last place you saw this theme of fear? One thing I thought was interesting 
is that Harry notes that he feels a little prickle of fear every time he says, you know who? It's not an anxiety or worry that he felt when he would just say the name Voldemort. Mm. There's something about that fear being learned, too. It's something about not saying the name actually generates the fear in him, which yeah. is which is really intriguing and really says something about like how traumatized the wizarding community is and like what that naming practice does. Yeah, I'm always curious about that, about the things that we learn to be scared of. Like, I grew up in California and we do have rattlesnakes, right? But like, I have I don't know anyone who's actually been bitten by a rattlesnake. Out here, there really aren't rattlesnakes. And yet when I see a snake, I am so scared. And like, why? Right. I feel like that is entirely a learned thing that at some point someone told me snakes are scary. And here I am almost 40 being like, yes, snakes are scary. When really like the only truly dangerous thing I ever do is driving. I take driving very seriously, but I'm not scared when I get in the car. But if I see a snake on a hike, it is like my adrenaline is pumping through me for an hour afterwards as if I had like an interaction with death. It's so weird the way fears are irrational and learned that even irrational fears are learned. Yeah. So Matt, the the last moment that I want us to pay attention to is there's this great moment where like Fred and George run toward like quote unquote fear. They find out that Lee Jordan has a tarantula and a lot of kids seem to be running toward it, right? Like Lee is showing people and it's very exciting. And so I think that there is something about us that likes to court fear a little bit. And then it's also fun this moment because we find out that Lee Jordan has dreadlocks. And so we are either led to believe that he's a white guy with inappropriate hair or it's a weird way to hint at the one character of color. Ethnicity is not described in these novels, except in these very rare places like a Cho Chang or like a very quickly passing descriptor like like Lee Jordan's dreadlocks. This is one of the things we want to do as we go through these novels again. What is the neutral ethnicity of these novels, right? There is no such thing as a neutral ethnicity, but we might be able to see in the gaze of the narrator of these novels, what is served by not describing people's ethnicities? Why do the novels not describe that? What do we presume about these characters because the novels don't describe that? Why is it important to the narrator to describe it in certain situations? Why is it important to Rowling to to make sure we as readers know that Lee Jordan has has dreadlocks? I mean, it might just be tokenism. It might just be like, oh, we're making a you might we're making a, a diverse school, so I have to have lots of characters from different places, and and that might be part of it, right? But but that's just something we want to pay attention to going forward because there are so few of these descriptors. They, we have to assume, this is the way we read, we have to assume that there's some meaning behind their, their use when that use occurs. So Matt, I'm so excited to do Havruta with you for the first time. So the way Havruta works is that I bring a question to you, but I have to also provide an answer to the question. And then you have to answer my question with a question of your own and an answer of your own. And this is all very text-based, so we should really be looking at the text closely for our questions and our answers. And this is based on Talmudic reading practices, so the way that two students sit over one Talmud and and try to push each other in their understanding of Talmud. So my question that I brought today 
is what is the lesson that this chapter wants us to learn about bullies? We have two bullies. I think this is one of the only chapters where we have both Dudley and Draco in the same chapter. And I would argue that they are the two like cast bullies, right? Like the credits could roll at the end and they could be called bully number one and bully number two. And like you would know vaguely who we're talking about. And both of the bullies get punished in this chapter. Dudley has to go have his tail removed and Draco's like minion gets bit by a rat. And like, so Draco sort of gets like run out of town. And so I feel like the text is arguing that the way to beat bullies, the way to like bring them down is through violence and that is like not a lesson I'm comfortable with at all, because all it does is turn the whole world into bullies. I'm wondering what you think about my reading of it. If you think that that is also what the chapter is like teaching us or what is going on here. So this is interesting. When you said two bullets in this chapter, I immediately thought of Crab and Goyle, not Draco and Dudley. And I think it's because to me, you're right. You're absolutely right. They are minions. They're not the ringleader. But to me, they have the kind of physical characteristics of what I associate with a bully. And I was being really demeaning the Crab and Goyle. Basically, I mean Draco, Crab and Goyle as like one unit. No, but I think you're right. As some of the listeners of the show know, I have personal kind of morals that relate to non-retaliation. And I'm uncomfortable with the language of nonviolence for reasons we might go into at some point in this podcast. But I'm certainly opposed to retaliation. I believe in non-retaliation. The novels actually present some issues of, you know, like responding to violence with violence. I mean, the the seventh book is a situation of extreme violence that is met with with a violent response. So I think that the answer to your question might be right. But I also wonder if the text doesn't offer us other answers that those of us who do believe in non-retaliation might want to grab onto. Because maybe what's most important in Harry and Ron standing up together is not that Scabbers the Rat who we actually know is not who he seems and is not a good person. Maybe the lesson is not that Scabbers will bite Goyle if you stand up together, but just the fact that they stood up together, that Harry's instinct was to stand by Ron and Ron's instinct was to stand by Harry and both of them stood up together. And, and there's something about, again, bullies try to make us turn our fear inward so we feel like we're alone and that there's no one around to support us. In that moment, because of this very brief relationship they've had, Ron and Harry stand up together and and take strength from each other. Yeah, so maybe that's not the only lesson we learned from the scene. I think there is something about responding to violence with violence, but it could be one of the things that we learn. Because if you're going to respond to violence with something other than violence, you need to do it in community. You need to do it with support. You can't be you can't be alone in that work. I don't, I don't think. I love that answer. There have been a few moments in my life where I have felt bullied, and I think that in those moments I have felt more betrayed by the people who witnessed it and didn't say anything than I did by the bully. I needed someone to stand up with me. And so I love that because I just hope every listener is now thinking, okay, next time I see someone bullied, we just stand up together. Even And it's not like Ron and Harry have a plan. Like they're in a bad situation and like maybe they will both get beat up, but better to be in it together. I just love that so much. After the Charlottesville white supremacist rally, I traveled from my home with some people in my church up to a Black Lives Matter march and rally in Boston. And on the on the train as we were going, you know, there were lots of people on the train and lots of people who were very obviously going to this rally. And one person had a 
sign. I can't remember what the language on the sign was, but another person on the train who was not supportive of Black Lives Matter started just antagonizing this person. And within about 10 seconds, a woman near the person who was being harassed just turned to her and started everyday conversation, right? Which they recommend you do in these situations. They said like, oh, I, I really like your haircut. And there was just something so powerful in that moment. I think a lot the energy, the, the tension in that car escalated. A lot of people were there who were on the side of this woman, but were not quite sure what to do. And this one person, just by making this harassed individual know she was not alone, it like completely, it completely stifled the the bully. He got off at the next stop, and it it changed the temperature in the room. And it was there was no violence, right? There wasn't like a shouting match. There wasn't anything. It was just like it made clear in the moment to the bully on that train that this individual was not alone, that this person could not be isolated, that this was not a situation that that he could control in that way. And that made him leave. And it was it was a, a brilliant thing. It was great. I think I want to ask the question, are crab and goyle bullies? There's part of me that wants to say yes, because they are gonna they are willing to use violence to hurt other people. And they're willing to do all the things that bullies do. So they fulfill any definition. Just because of other things I've read in the series, it seems to me that crab and goyle are isolated in their own ways. And they are also don't feel a lot of freedom to act much differently than they do. Again, this is not to excuse their behavior, but there is a different kind of culpability between the ringleader and the minion. And that doesn't excuse the minions, but I don't know if that's if that qualifies as bullying behavior. I think maybe it's something else. Yeah, I mean, they are victims and perpetrators, which always complicates things. And I think that that is always what's hard about bullies. I feel like it's this trite thing that we think parents say, like, well, if a bully is bullying you, they're probably in a lot of pain themselves. But also it's true, right? Like we know that Draco is in a relationship with his father where the love is entirely conditional. And we know that Crab and Goyle are being verbally abused by Draco regularly. It doesn't make them not bullies though. The question is then what do we do with bullies? I never know what to do with that compassion, the like compassion at the end, or rather I know what I want to do with the compassion. I don't then know what to do as far as like culpability and accountability. I think it makes it harder to deal with, with what it means to stand up to a bully, which is why the example you gave is so great. The woman on your train didn't turn and attack the bully. The bully retained their full humanity in that moment as well. It took the bully's power away without dehumanizing them. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. What I was thinking when you were talking is that like, boy, loneliness is a really powerful force. Isolation is a really harmful thing. But now everybody reacts to isolation the way they do. I mean, what does Harry do? He asks Molly for help, <laughs> right? Like there are other things you can do when you feel isolated than to than to, to lash out. I think, again, I think what we can learn from maybe the woman on this train that I was on or from Harry and Ron is that when we don't know what to do, it's okay to acknowledge we don't know what to do and to seek counsel and support from others. Even if what we don't know what to do is how to respond to a situation and demand accountability, right? That can be a really difficult thing that we don't know how to do. And so we have to reach out to others and have to talk to others. And that's just, that's part of the problem. It's all about trying to resist the inward focused kind of isolating elements of fear and instead to turn outward and look for and lean on the support of others. Well, thank you so much for doing that first Havruta with me, Matt. Havruta is great. I love Havruta. That's great. Isn't it so great? I love it. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, 
you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This week's voicemail is from Amethyst. Hello, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. So... My name is Amethyst and I'm a black woman and one of the main reasons I connect with the fan idea of reading Hermione is Black stems from her experience entering Hogwarts. We see her being on the outskirts socially for being a quote-unquote know-it-all. In my experience, people with in-dominant social groups, oftentimes white people, are still able to find their communities, partly because there are so many options. This is especially true given that being a know-it-all as an 11-year-old is far from a shockingly different personality trait. I've seen groups of white jocks, white nerds, white theater kids, etc. in my schooling experience purely because there were so many. But as one of a handful of black students, I was consistently viewed as an outsider and I didn't have the same social options in the same way we see Hermione being treated and viewed at the beginning of her first year. Her exclusion seems to go beyond just her brief social norm discussions and connects more to experiences of discrimination. When she is involved with the troll situation with Ron and Harry, it reminded me of another aspect of my experience. Whether it was helping peers with homework or laughing through racist jokes, I had to actively perform in order to prove my worth and be accepted socially. I know that Ron and Harry eventually truly love Hermione as who she is, just as I have several white friends who are like my family. But we cannot ignore that so many of Hermione's experiences at Hogwarts and beyond are so related to the discrimination of her marginalized identities. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Amethyst, for that 
for your email and for sharing your experience so openly. I mean, the, the one thing that I think about is that, you know, calling somebody a know-it-all says more about what the perceiver thinks that person ought to know, right? Or what that person's allowed to know. Or calling somebody bossy says more about who one thinks ought to be a boss than it does about the person who's actually in that role. And your personal experience and your reading of Hermione as Black, I think, really brings this into stark relief in a way that is so useful and so helpful, not just for our reading of these novels, but also just for the way we think about how we operate in the world and the way we read one another and the way that these these identities and these marginalizations operate in our own lives. Yeah, I originally balked at Black Hermione, I think for two reasons. One was just like the purely selfish reason that I always read her as Jewish. I'm like, she has bushy hair and two doctor parents. That's a Jew. And like, I love her so much that I just wanted to claim her as my own. And then the other was me not wanting to let Rowling off the hook for these like two moments where Rowling clearly writes Hermione is white. She describes her skin as white. And I was like, do not give Rowling credit for like writing a black character. But I just keep being compelled more and more by brilliant points by black women about the ways that Hermione's blackness is not an add on, but is actually a really beautiful way to just read Hermione. And as we are separating ourselves from Rowling more and more, I am just get more and more excited about this reading. And Amethyst, I feel like you've added to the points in the bucket for Hermione is absolutely a black character. And it's fine that she's not Jewish. I do not need her to be Jewish in order for me to see myself in her. Well, maybe this is this is this maybe Ashkenazi supremacy. Maybe she's a she's black Jewish. Right. No, I love that. That was my Ashkenazi supremacy. I'm not all Ashkenazi, but it was my it was my white Jewish supremacy. It is now time for us to remember members of our community who were lost due to COVID-19. Ruben Wenzel, 94, a beloved teacher, mentor and godfather. Marty B. Mike Gant. 73, a husband, father, grandfather, and veteran. Florence Boyles, who celebrated their 94th birthday in good health and died two weeks later of COVID. She was a grandmother, square dancer, and smart ass. Florence Toby Silverman, 89, a grandmother and lover of books. Charlotte Erdely, who is 92, a grandmother, mother, and a Hungarian freedom fighter. May their memories be a blessing. So Matt, it is now time for us to offer blessings and we flipped a coin and you get to bless Molly. So go ahead. I'm blessing Molly this week because Molly's amazing for all the reasons that we described. As I said, I think this is maybe my favorite Molly moment in all the books, just managing that platform. And also like we didn't mention this in our earlier conversation, but she's saying goodbye to her 11 year old son. She's sending him to boarding school. Her heart is breaking inside. Right. Like her her little one is going away and she is still able to hold it together for every one of those people. Even this stranger who she meets on the platform. Molly's a hero. Deserves every blessing, as does every every mother who does that every day. Also, every guardian parent who does it every day, who when their heart is breaking a little bit, holds it together for their kids. 
Well, I'm going to bless Ginny. I'm going to bless Ginny. A, because this is so sad. She's watching her brothers go off to school without her. She's not included. But also, Ginny, you get a year at home alone with Molly. I am so happy for you. As someone who always had like a lot of people living with us and two brothers, the idea of having a year alone essentially with my mom sounds amazing. And so, Ginny, I'm just so happy for you. I'm so sorry that you're left alone, but I'm just so happy for you. I know that Arthur will be around too. But he works a lot. So it's just going to be, right, Matt? It's going to be Molly homeschooling Jenny, right? Do wizards and witches go to muggle school until they go to Hogwarts? Or do they get homeschooled? I think they get homeschooled. There are a lot of mysteries around that. But whatever, regardless, she gets so much alone time with mom. She's sad today, but she will be happy tomorrow. Right? I'm so happy for, for sure. her. Because Molly is also going to have all this like affection, which she's going to just redirect it all towards Jenny. It's going to be, life is going to be good. For a year. It's going to be great. I feel like if Jenny were like 15 and this happened, she'd be like, oh, my God, mom, too much. But like 11 year old. uh, Oh, I'm so happy for Jenny. OK, Matt. So next week we're going to be reading chapter seven. And I think that we should do it through the theme of revenge because we've been talking about that. And so that's my idea for the sorting hat. What do you think? I think I like it. I think this is going to be a real test of our new plan to like whatever topic is lingering from our conversation to carry it over to the week to come. Uh, is revenge something we can read the sorting hat through? I guess we're going to see. Once you actually said it back to me, I'm like, oh, maybe it's a bad idea, but we'll try. But we'll see, right? Like this is this is the wager of the sacred text reading, right? We're going to say like we believe that this text has something to teach us about this thing that's on our minds. So let's see what happens. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find listeners who are discussing the episodes in the Facebook common room. Please join our local groups and come and join the community of people supporting us on Patreon. Please leave us a review on iTunes and send us a voicemail with your blessing. We are a Not Sorry production. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. We've been edited this week by Juliana Bradley. Our engineer is Erica Wong. Our music is by Ivan Paisal and Nick Bull. And we are distributed by Acast. We'd like to thank Amethyst for this week's voicemail, Molly Baxter, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Casper Turk-Kyle, Stephanie Paulsell, and everyone who sent in the names of their loved ones. Thanks, everyone, and we'll talk to you next week. My grandmother used to feed me corned beef sandwiches, so I I insist that corned beef is a gesture of love. <laughs> <laughs> it is a gesture of love. It's just not received as a gesture of love. Fair enough. Fair enough.